we're finishing up a series in Goad We Trust. Um, and what we've looked at as we've looked at the series, just a couple things, a goad is a prod. It is a means to control animals and to force them to go in the direction you want them to go. That's what a goad is, to kick against the goads then. If you imagine yourself as an animal, you're being prodded. To kick against the goads is to have somebody sticking you with a sharp stick, or today they're electrified. And that doesn't feel very good, and so you would kick against it and resist that influence. That's what it means to kick against the goads, is to resist going in the direction the one who is goading you wants you to walk in. As we've been saying, uh, Paul was on a mission from God. At least that's what he thought. He was on his way to Damascus to beat up Christians. And it turns out that he was on a mission from God. I'll just read the last part of the uh, description where he's talking to the king. And he's describing what happened. He says, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What is Jesus saying? Common to interpret, as we've been saying from week to week, that God is the one that's doing the goading. And so what it would mean, if God's the one doing the goading, that God is prodding Paul to recognize the fact that Jesus is God and 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 Paul keeps on resisting, kicking against God's influence, kicking against God's goads. He, God's telling him, well, look at the miracles he's doing. And Paul says, I don't want to look at the miracles he's doing. And, but look at the things he's saying, but I don't want to look at the things he's saying. And he's kicking against God's influence. That's one interpretation. I don't think it fits the picture Paul paints because God is not subtle when he brings his influence. And when he shows up, Paul finds himself down in the dust being blinded. God was not subtle with him. He didn't kind of poke him a little bit. It was when God exerted his influence, Paul didn't, he couldn't kick against it. So what could this mean then? Um, I think we can find another interpretation as we've been saying, a goad is the weapon of a conquered people. So the Romans had conquered the Jews and there was a time in Israel's history when the Philistines had conquered them. This is much before the time Jesus lived. And when the Philistines conquered the Israelites, they couldn't have swords because the Philistines didn't want them to have swords. So what would happen if the Philistines wanted to marshal a military resistance, they would have to use goads. They would sharpen goads and they would use them as spears. And, and so... A goad is the symbol of a resistance movement. The Pharisees, and Paul was one of them, were convinced that it was God's will for them, for Israel, to rebel against Rome, the way they rebelled against Greece a century or so earlier. And the Pharisees were a big part of that rebellion. And so they were goading Paul, prodding him to take up their cause and to get involved. Paul would have felt a certain degree of, yeah, because he was a Jew. But he was also a Roman citizen, so he was caught between. And it was hard for him to both want to go along with the Pharisees and to not be able to do so. He was being pulled in half. Jesus identifies this goading 
as the root of Paul's problem. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It was hard for Paul to resist the prodding to join the Jewish resistance movement, so this is what he did. He found a way to make peace with the Jews, kind of, and with himself. He put the crosshairs on the Christian church and didn't stop shooting. He went everywhere trying to eliminate Christians. And again, I think that's a reason that he was doing the things he did. That's why I think Jesus asked the question and answers it. Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to Damascus and you're going to kill people? You know what the deal is, Paul? It's really hard for you to kick against goads, isn't it? You're being prodded to pick up the mantle of resistance. And you know what? I think what he ends up seeing, God is not goading Paul. Others are goading him. And that's how we've defined then goading as fog-based spiritual influence. We talk about fog and F-O-G. What's F? Fear. O. G. So spirit goading is fog-based spiritual influence. When you claim to speak on God's behalf and use fear, you better get with us, Paul. Use obligation. Paul, you're a Pharisee, and the Pharisees need to be behind this. And guilt. What, Paul, you're going to be a Roman? And it was hard for Paul to kick against that influence. We saw that we go when we use fog to influence people to obey God. JC will be up in a little bit. And we'll describe how when we speak for God and use fear, obligation, and guilt, that's what we that's what goading is. We try to prod people to do the right thing. Ultimately, we, be, we goad because we believe God goads. Um, we're going to talk today about how to replace goading, how to replace goading. And it begins with addressing the right problem. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, describes what happened in the wilderness. So we get to figure out what was the problem in the wilderness. And it's as you hear this, here's what I want you to cue in on. Uh, Before you solve a problem, you have to understand it. Wouldn't you agree? You can't really fix a problem until you understand what the problem is. For instance, you go into the hospital. You're not going to get the right medicine if they don't diagnose the disease. That's why diagnosis comes first. You figure out the disease, then you can target the disease with the right medicine. It's the same thing for any endeavor. You can't fix a problem until you really understand the problem. So I want you to listen here. And here's the question I want you to try to answer as you hear or read along. What happened in the wilderness? What was the problem? They wandered around for 40 years. Why? Okay. Writer says, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter Because of their unbelief. 
necessary to identify a problem again. And he says, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest? It says, if not to this, those who disobeyed. The word disobeyed is literally a disobedience that's based in disbelief. It's when I, if you tell me to do something, say, Mike, do this. And if I look at you and I'm not persuaded, you're going to follow through. Now, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. But it's not just because I am rebellious. It's because I really don't trust you. I really don't trust you. I'm not persuaded. You have my best interest in mind. And this is what it's saying. The Jews, they, the problem was God gave them news, and they said, mm, I don't know. I, I don't trust him. And so their disobedience was based in disbelief. Does that make sense? It's, it's a specific kind of disobedience. They didn't do what he said because they didn't trust him to do what he said he'd do. That's what happened. Um, this is the root of the problem. They were unconvinced. And it's the writer says, again, so we see they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The lack of belief was at the root of their problem. Um, would you agree with me? If believing is the problem rather than behaving, if misbelieving was the problem, not misbehaving, you can goad somebody to do the right thing. You can goad somebody to behave, right? Do that. Go there. Can you goad somebody to believe? No, you really can't, can you? Because I might go this way, and I might do it. Yeah, for instance, you can try to make one of your kids, now you'll eat those peas and you'll like it. Now the kid's going to, you know, he's going to shake the peas, and he's going to go, I'm going to eat them, but I won't like them. You can't make somebody like something. Goading works for behaving. It doesn't work real good if you want to get somebody to believe. Um, let's explore the problem in a little more detail, because what we're going to find is God's cued in on not what we do, but what we're thinking. He doesn't. He's not just looking at us eating the peas. He's looking at our thoughts as we're eating the peas. He doesn't see, I'm doing what you want, what he sees, I'm eating these peas, but I hate them. That's, that's what he sees. Look what it says in um, Hebrews 4. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And what it's saying, God reveals his news. That's what the gospel, God reveals news. He says, it's a promise, it's news. This is what I'm going to do. And, I, and then he registers our internal response to that news. Now, it's going to reflect itself in what we do, but what God sees, before we do what we do, God sees what we think. He sees our response to the news. And that's what he registers. When it says the word of God is living and active, it's operational. And so the word of God reveals his news, but then it doesn't turn off at that point. The red light is still glowing. And you know what his word is doing? It's active. It's registering our response to the news. So it both tells us something and peers inside at our head to register and record our response to what we hear. That's what it means when it says the word of God is living and active. It judges the things inside. 
the soul and spirit are the inside parts of us. The joints and marrow are the inside parts of us. God looks at the inside, at the things that we don't show on the outside, the things we show in the, that, that are on the inside. That's what he looks at. There's a, um, an, incident, an incident when, well, remember when they, the guys, they cut a hole in the ceiling and, and dropped the guy down to get him healed? Um, so here's what happened. Some men brought to him a paralytic, according to Jesus, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law, they said to themselves, so if Jesus is up here doing this thing, the teachers of the law are way back, and they're talking to themselves. Now, if some folks on the other side of that doorway, if you talk to yourself, well, if you, I can't hear anyway, so you could be talking here, and I couldn't hear you. But, but if, you're, if, if I were a regular hearing person, and you're talking to yourself, there's no way in the world I can hear you. Okay, you say, so I can't, I don't, uh, but you know what Jesus was able to do? They were talking to themselves, and Jesus can read minds. And so he could hear, he could understand what they were thinking in their minds. They were saying to themselves, um, they said, this fellow is blaspheming. And this is what he did. If you guys were thinking this, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your, in your hearts? And he said, I, I would shut up. You know, I said, <laughs> but, you, but you can't shut up. Because he sees what they were thinking without them saying it. God's word judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The things that we think that we really don't say to others about the things that he says to us. That's what his word registers. Jesus reads their mind and judges thoughts. Jay, come on up. Um, God reads our minds and judges our thoughts. We've been talking about goading. And would you talk a little bit, Jay, about if I'm using fear, obligation, and guilt to prod you to do something, can you talk a little bit about the kind of thoughts that that creates because God is judging the thoughts? And so, mm-hmm. Well, so, that, so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, obviously, I'm thinking, I, I tend to think myself first, like, okay, what, what happens? And the first thing I think of is I came up with four categories. Hunger-based thoughts. I want this stuff. I'm starving for it, so I decide I want to get it. Um, Pleasure-based stuff. Uh, Screw everything. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, that kind of thing. Um, Then I thought, okay, we're at hope. And uh, then I thought, okay, so if we boil it down, for me, the the two categories that make more sense to me is task-based stuff. So goading in the name of getting stuff done. Anybody do that? Wait, wait, wait. I asked you a question. Anybody do that? <laughs> Goad in the name of getting stuff done. Okay? Task-based stuff. Who, who said that? <laughs> okay? Or goading in the name of keeping a relationship or for, la- for relationship's sake. Anybody do that? Wait, wait, wait. Anybody do that? We only got two categories. So... I should have seen everybody's <laughs> hand go up on at least one of them. Let me ask this again. No, here's, let me tell you why I think those categories make more sense. Goading is the, 
the, the foundation for goading is found in Genesis. For it's not good for us to be alone. When we believe we're alone, without support, without protection, then goading is the only option I think we have. And it sets up my thinking. So when I believe I'm alone, there's no father. Jesus is good, but he can't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. Mike is a good preacher, but it's just talk. He's just talking religious stuff. I don't, I'm on my own on Monday. <laughs> I'm on my own on Monday. And the Chambers dude, he's always talking psychology, so we don't even listen to him either, right? I'm, I'm, I'm alone on Monday or, or Sunday afternoon. I guarantee you what happens if I'm alone. Then when I go, when I use fear, guilt, and obligation, it's for two reasons. The thoughts in my head. Now, I'm a task guy. So thoughts in my head, I can, you can do tasks well or you can do tasks. I mean, both of them are twisted. But tasks can be, well, I really want to get this done. I want to help you, Mary Beth, to get stuff done. You can get it done, though, like <laughs> by tomorrow. Okay, or I can be like a friend who will remain unnamed, and that is, I don't care about being nice. <laughs> We're getting this done. <laughs> I won't say that, but I I start to. My thinking is, I have no resource. I'm not connected to anybody who I can hand things to. So if it's gonna get done, it's on me. Okay. And so that's that's the thinking. If it's going to get done, it's on me. Now, am I going to do it nicely or I'm going to be a butt about it? And some of us don't care about being a butt, so we're a butt. And some of us are nice, smiling, get it done. It's still the same thing. You can do that with your approach to God, too. Be task-oriented. So I can bust through, read the Bible, think I know it well, and tell people. Or... I can keep track of every little thing I get done. And then I say to God, see, I read my Bible to church. I talk nicely to people. Task. Relational looks a little different. Relational thinking is I'm alone. Now, if I'm alone relationally, I got nobody to love, touch, or care for me. So I need to secure that hook. So... I can be demanding so that you stay with me, but if the root is that the thing is relationships matter. Or I can be placating and accommodating, right? Really nice and syrupy and take stuff that I shouldn't take. I see it every day when I'm working. And I'm not talking about the extreme. I'm talking about the middle, you know, the nice, drippy, oh, I just did this because I love him. And I'm like, did he ask you to do that? Um, no. What did what you do it for? Well, and it's, you know, or I'm going to hang around and watch her. <laughs> Everywhere she goes. What are you doing that for? Oh, she needs me. No, she don't. But I can't. If I'm alone and I need relationship, then you have to be my life. It's one of those kind of things Mike talked about the church that says getting life from. I can get life from the people around me. And when they cease to exist, I'm in trouble because I'm not getting life from the life giver. I'm getting life from people. Who, none of you were designed to give me life, but I can treat you like it. I can elevate you to the place where you have to be happy with me. Now, see, I'm guilty of being task-oriented, but I'm also guilty of extracting the smile. 
I put my business in the street, so don't give back to me when I'm on the street, right? I want to hear J.C. said he was, because if my wife gets this, I'm in trouble. Now, she already knows this, right? So I, I, was, I was good at shape-shifting myself so people like me, okay, because relationships are important. It's goading. Whether you goad you or you goad me, I goaded me to get you to like me. That's goading still. It's not, and we trust that whether we're task-oriented or whether we're relational-oriented. And we can come up with all kinds of justifications for getting stuff done or keeping her close that have nothing to do with trust, trusting the Father. It has nothing to do with trusting the Father. We're going to look, and, and as, as we've been saying, the issue is it's, we're going to try to get people to do things, and that's one thing. But would you agree that the problem is when I stand in for God, I say, God wants you to do this. And so I'm saying that it's really for his benefit, but it really isn't. If I use fear, obligation, and guilt, and I'm speaking on his behalf, that's or, a different, right? Or I, or I quietly think I'm God's man or God's woman. So I'm married to Mary Beth, and I think I'm God's man in her life. So then I don't, I don't ever say to her, God told me to tell you or you ought to. I just think it in my head. Like, if you were really understood who you were married to, you would do what I'm asking you to do. Because <laughs> I'm God's man for you right now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we, we quietly think that stuff. Like, we elevate ourselves. We, the scriptures say that. We, we, we see ourselves higher than we are, right? If you really understood, Travis, how good a friend I am, Anything I ask you to do or listen to musically, you'll do it. <laughs> right? Now, you laughing because some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That isn't stuff I'm going to publicize. You know? Or, or, or my thing is sometimes somebody will say, Jay, can, I, can you help me with? And my, my real thought is, I cannot even believe you're asking me to do this. You mean to tell me? Now, here's based on alone. Here's what I say back in my head. You mean to tell me you couldn't do this by yourself? See, that's, that's di dismissive. But at the core, because I believe I'm alone, when people come to me with some things that I had to figure out on my own, I'm annoyed because you, you figure it out. I had to do it. But that has nothing to do with fellowship. has nothing to do with, that has to do with me shoring myself up with the stuff I did on my own. And, and that's the goofy stuff. If you understand the problem, and the problem is believing, then you can apply the right solution. Look what it says in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, you want to underline something, underline that. Encourage one another daily. That is the antidote for unbelief. If you're going to deal with unbelief, goading does not work. So if I'm going to try to get you to do something, goading is going to work. But God's not going to judge what you do. If I really care about him and care about you, then I am not going to goad you because if I get you to do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong reason, that's not going to pass muster with him. I'm going to encourage you. Believing is 
impacted by encouragement, not goading. That's what this verse is, I think, is intimating, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. Encouragement is the way to address a believing problem. And we're encouraged to believe in order to avoid falling into the same unbelief problem that they did in the wilderness. That's what we need to do for one another. Encouragement. What is encouragement? I, I love the. I get an image of it. I create a picture. There was this um, group of mountain climbers who set out early one morning to make it to the top of a mountain. They started. It was going to be a day trip. They were going to. They're going to go up about maybe late morning. They were going to arrive at halfway point. They were going to go up and then they were going to come back down. That's what happened. They stopped to eat and rest at a lodge about halfway up the mountain late morning. And then when they were there, they, you know, they got some R&R, and some of the people, they said, you know what, I'm not sure we want to go up the rest of the way. And so some decided, we're going to stay here. And, and then the other group packed up, and then they went off. Let's split the group in half. And what happened is what the lodge owner knew would happen. And here's what, when those individuals split off and they went up the mountain, what did the people around the table do? Oh, <laughs> whoa, I'm real. This is great. Pass the turkey. You know, and it was, it was great for an hour or so. And at that point, they were done eating. And he'd seen this happen many times. They started to walk over to the window. And they started to look up at the mountain. And then they'd go there, and then they'd come back, and then they'd go there, and then they did that for the afternoon. You know what they were thinking? We made the wrong choice. We came here to climb a mountain, and we stopped halfway. Let's, I want you to back up. Let's back up. They're around the table, okay? They're around the table. Half of them are getting ready to go. Half of them are getting ready to stay. Let me show you what an encourager would do. He'd come in this Let's say the, the, he comes in from the side. And, and here they are. Hey, hey, listen, folks, I just want you to know, I've seen this a bunch of times. I think some of you might be thinking of staying, but here's what I've seen. I've seen when people decide to stay and they don't go up the mountain, they end up spending the afternoon looking up the window at where they really wish they'd gone. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you know what? I think you will like choosing to keep on with your journey. That's what you came here. That person is an encourager. He uses his influence. Now, I'm not saying, what in the world is wrong? You know, you understand there wasn't fear, and there wasn't obligation, and there wasn't guilt. This is what I've seen. This is what I know. This is what I've experienced. And if they take, that's encouragement. Encouragement coming alongside. That's really what the word encourage means, to, to call someone to one side. That's what it means. And it's not influencing like this. Encouragement is alongside. It's moving with somebody in the same direction. That's what encourage, And that's what this guy did. That's encouragement. Um, an encourager comes alongside travelers and keeps them going in the direction that's truly best for them. And this is what encouragement is about. It's alongside. Jay, would you come back up? And 
there's a difference between encouraging. Now, we've got to change because there's things that we don't want to do. There's a difference between being goaded to do them. What do you mean you're not going to do that? You said you'd do it. Okay, don't do it. Don't, no, it's okay. I'll be fine. I, no, no, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Goading. Okay. There's a difference between that and encouragement. Take your time. Encouragement's alongside. Can you talk about that a little bit? And the thoughts that hit yeah, our head yeah. when we're so, encouraged? So, goading is, we established goading's alone based thinking. Encouragement is someone comes alongside. When we're talking in church and not some other context, we're talking about the, the reality that God comes alongside, which means. He, he, he stands in the gap with you, not in judgment of you, not looking down at you, but stands in the gap with you, okay? And he's a, he's a God who understands the tragedy. So I, I, I believe this. Encouragement is something where someone comes along and challenges our alone-based thinking. Now, here's what my first thing I want to say to you. When you are encouraged at a deep level, it doesn't feel like encouragement. Do you hear what I'm saying? When you get encouraged at a deep level, it's disintegrating. And it's exposing. It's disintegrating and it's exposing. It doesn't necessarily feel like good news. For example, I'll give you an example of one of my kids. Kid named Jordan, six foot post player, playing for me when my daughter Carly was in eighth grade. Now, the honest truth is, I'm the, I was the second choice coach, okay? Because I asked her to come play for me, and she, and she was on this elite team, and she was like, "No, nope, I'm playing with these guys," and I was bummed out because she's a crazy good post. But she was playing with the elite team, and then she went to play with the AAU team, and when she went to practice, the coach dogged her out and said to her, you know, I don't know who you've been playing post for, but you can't play, blah, blah, blah. So I got the call. Her mom called me. She said, did you ask Jordan to play? I said, yeah, when we were in Brookings, I asked her to play. She told me no. She said, I'm just telling you that was stupid because she's tried out for this AAU team, and they crushed her, and I, I watched you coach. Could she get a second chance at this? I said, uh, I tried to be like, uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, <laughs> right. So, so I get this six foot post who can jump out of the gym, jump out of the gym, jump. <laughs> and so, so I get, I get her. We we go down to Nebraska and we're playing, and and I, and I put her on the court, and she runs to the block. Now, some of you are not basketball players may not know what that means, but let's put it this way: she runs under the goal and stands there. Then she gets the ball at the free throw line, and she gets the ball wide open and passes it away, runs to the block again. I'm, I call her. I said, Jordan, what are you doing? She said, I, I, um, they told me I can't, I can't shoot. I said, and now this is during the game. Who is they? <laughs> she said, my, my coach said, if I get the ball at the top of the, at the free throw line, I'm supposed to pass it. I said, who are your coaches? She said, you? I said, what do I say? I don't know. 
I said, if you get the ball on that free throw line and you don't shoot, you're coming to sit with me. On my team, you shoot. She went out in the court like this. This dude is weird. She avoided the free throw line. That's what she did. Her solution was, I'm not going to the free throw line. Okay? Disintegrating. She had never been told. She had the freedom. Okay? That lasted for about two games. We're in, we're in Lincoln playing Amazon teams. I mean, them Nebraska girls get radioactive corn or something. Because <laughs> in eighth grade, I had three six-footers. I thought I had a squad. We Our first game against the... The Nebraska Cornhuskers, shooting star, something. <laughs> they put on the court a 6'4", a 6'3", and a 6'3", 8th graders. And they weren't little squirrely, I can't play 8th graders. <laughs> they were Amazon girls at 8th grade. <laughs> and the point guard they put against us is playing at Purdue. <laughs> they were like, you're playing against KK. I'm like, oh. So we, I didn't know who she was. So we're down by the game's going so fast. We're down by 20, and the coach don't even know what's going on. Me. <laughs> right? So the third game in, we're playing against the Sioux Falls team. It happened to be that team that the coach was on. So I say to Jordan, I said, Jordan, what you going to do? Now, if you don't shoot the ball, they're going to be right. She said, Coach, just, just put me out there. So I put her out there. This kid scores our first 15 points. (laughs) She's shooting the ball, rebounding everything. I said, what you playing so hard? She said, coach, you believed in me. They said I couldn't play. That's encouraging, right? The capacity to come alongside and then walk with people as their disintegration settles. When God encourages you or when someone in the faith comes along and encourages you and they touch the bruise, for the first time that bruise gets touched, you will not like the touch. It will bring tears, confusion, anger, and rage. Those are the kinds of things. What do you mean? I remember listening to Mike. This is a cool story. I, but he, tell, he told it a lot. When we first, a long time ago, when we were part of church plant, he told this story. You know how Mike is over and over. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I won't bring up the song we sang all the time. <laughs> okay. But he told the story, and the reason I love it is because I, I grew up in the same faith. I was a Catholic kid, grew up as a server. And, and I remember him telling the story of coming to understand grace. And, and the encouragement of grace meant that his server stuff didn't get him in. And for the first time I heard a pastor say how mad he was that that stuff didn't get him in. See, what happens is encouragement will tell you this. The other thing I'll say is encouragement is not about outcome. It's not about outcome. It's about process. And encouragers presume presume struggle. They presume struggle. So people who are encouraging you in the faith, encouraging you at hope, trying to get you to buy into the belief, aren't looking at you and going, well, I told you to do it X. And you didn't do it X. What I understand now as an encourager is as you're walking along the faith, it's going to be a jagged road because it's been a jagged road and it will continue to be a jagged road for me. Is it a jagged road for you? Maybe I'm the only one. You do faith the way you want to do faith. You like super Christians? Because that's what we get told. Goading 
says, oh, you slipped up. What's wrong with you? Something wrong with your wife? You got sin in your life? Now my answer to that is yes, yes. Something's wrong with me and I got sin in my life. Yes. And something's wrong with you because you don't act like you do. So get out of here. I, I don't even listen to it anymore. Right? The goal isn't to stamp out, step out. And if sin's deception, that's interesting. If sin's deception is what we struggle with, then if, I'm, if I believe I'm alone, then I'll act like I'm alone and just trick myself into believing I have to do stuff because I'm alone. Encouragement says you're not alone. Hmm. Encouragement says I know the process. It's going to be ugly. You're going to look ugly. You're going to be mad at me. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be surprised. I'm still here. I'm big enough to handle that all. And when you start to get that, oh, man. And when you have people in your life that encourage that, then you develop, you know, you develop. I used to think about what it would be like to be on stage and sing. I used to complain like, oh, they don't do no hip hop and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I said that to an encourager once. I said, yeah, I don't know why the church don't do no hip hop. He said, so you got a song we could do? I said, yeah. He said, bring it. I brought it. I handed it to him. And he said, oh, no, you got to come to practice on Sunday because you're doing the song. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, 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 you're going to do the song. I said, nah, that, that ain't going to work. He said, yeah, yeah, it'll be easy. Then you'll have struggles. And then we did, you know, a couple weeks later, we did a song. And the people in the stand was like, oh, this is hip-hop. Is this hip-hop? This is cool. <laughs> you know, and I'm standing on stage. And another time somebody comes and, you know, Doug says, why don't you just try to play my bongos? I'm like, whatever, dude. Well, now my my daughter calls me the crazy drummer, right? Because I've always wanted to drum. But encouragement will take you to places you've never been. Because, see, goading and fear and obligation and guilt are limiters. They don't allow you to be who you are. They don't allow you to be. They allow you to be who you think you should be and who you, they think you should be, not who God called you to be. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Encouragers. Open that. There was a, um, heard the story before, so we think about wrapping up. There was a preacher taking some people on a tour through Israel, and he was, he wanted to be the expert, so we went on and on about how the shepherds in Israel always walk in front. And so, and then he, he kind of, little known fact there, Nami, that, uh, you know, your Middle Eastern shepherds there, they walk in front of the sheep, not behind them. Uh, so anyways, you know exactly what happened. What happens in chairs, the same thing happens. So there's this group of sheep, and there's this guy running after him. <laughs> and so, and he's, you know, and then he ends up talking to the guy. He goes, uh, and he's red-faced and flabbergasted, and all the people in this tort, <laughs> you know, they're laughing at him. And he said, um, I told my people that a, a, a shepherd walks in front of the sheep and never chases them. You've heard this. The man replied, that's absolutely right. He said, I'm, but I'm not the shepherd, I'm the butcher. <laughs> uh, and fortunately, what we have in the Bible, quickly, is we don't, we don't just get a what, we get a how. So if we're to encourage belief, here's a question. Ready for this? What are we supposed to believe? What are you supposed to believe? Isn't that what we need to talk about? 
And I'm not going to goad you into believing it. I'm not going to say, you better believe. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to come alongside. Let's go to this place where we believe this together. And what are we supposed to believe? And in the passage, and let me read it, and then we're going to find four things, and then we're going to do communion. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. What do we get at the throne of grace? We get mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is the image there, help. Help is a rope. It's a rope. And if you're out to sea, the rope is what keeps parts of a ship together when the force of the water is going to want to pull things apart. This is called frapping. You frap things to keep them together. And the, the help we get at the throne of grace is that life tends to pull us apart and divides us. You know what judgment means? To divide. To divide. Judgment splits us from ourselves. And you know what this does? This is what God does. He doesn't come and he doesn't separate the good and the bad. You know what he does? He brings it together. He fraps. That's what help means. Mercy and grace to help to bring things together in time of need. So here is the image. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to prop us in our time of need. You know what God's going to do to you, to us? To encourage us to believe, well, a couple of things. It says, nothing is all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know what God's going to tell you to believe? And I'll speak on, not on, God says to you, I see you. I see you. And I just don't see the outside. I see all of you. I see the thoughts when I give you good news. I see your responses to the good news. Because that's what I'm looking at. I see you. Others don't see you, but I do. That could feel unnerving. Look where it goes after that. We do not have a high priest who wasn't able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. You know what else he says? Not only do I see you, I sympathize with you. You don't have to goad somebody to understand that God sympathizes. You know what you do with that? You encourage them. God sympathizes with you. He understands why you feel what you feel. He understands why you struggle with what you struggle with. God sees you, and he sympathizes with you. What would it do if you thought about that and began to believe it? You know what it would do? It would change your behavior because it changes your beliefs. 
Making room for believing the right things is where Christianity gets its power. It goes on. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. You know what God says to you? I see you, I sympathize with you, and I deal gently with you. God is gentle. He's not goading. He doesn't need to. Harsh people goad. God doesn't goad. He's gentle. He's not going to push you. Say, hurry up, go. And I understand why you're having a problem you have. And you know what? I sympathize with you. I understand why you have it. And he would say, look at me. Look at my eyes. I am not impatient. I am not harsh. I am direct. But I am calm. I am not frustrated. I am not cursing. I am not impatient. I am gentle. Gentle with you. Gentle with you. And after that, he said, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may save mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you understand why it says the things it says? God wants to do that with you. He wants to pull you to himself and support you. And you know what he says in order to get you to go to him? I see you. And I sympathize with you. And I deal gently with you. Come. Come to the throne of grace. And receive the stuff that you need to keep you together in the waters in which you're existing. What am I am I poking you to believe now? Are you being poked to are you being poked to behave? Are you being poked to behave? Are you being poked to believe? You're being encouraged to believe. Let's go in that direction together. We're going to walk to the communion table now, either here or here. And you know what I want you to think? This is good news. This is good news. This is about the character of God. And what it says, and as you think, I want you to think of these things. God, thanks that you see me. Thanks that you sympathize with me. Thanks that you deal gently with me and you love me. And how do I know this? You came all the way to the cross to show me how much you care about me. So at some time during the course of the next song, come and get the elements, take them to your table. I won't tell you when to drink the juice and eat the bread. You can eat it sometime during the song, but what I will want you to do, do this. I want you to think about, say it to yourself, make room for it in your head. Thanks that you see me. Can you say the four things? Thanks that you, thanks that, thanks that, thanks that, Okay, let's have the music go get the elements and think of those things. Let me pray. Father, as we, as, as we sing stuff like that and as it starts to dawn on us and something inside of us goes, yes, yeah, I believe that and I'd like to believe it more. You register that. We don't need to believe perfectly. You would have us Make room in our minds for your promises, your commitments to us. That's what you tell us about news. News is something you don't do. News is something you believe. 
And that's what you're looking for. You want to tell us things, good news things. And the good news, reg and you register our response. Would you help us to, to make room in our minds for your promises, your commitments to us? Because you register a belief in those. That's where it, it is. That's where the root is. It's belief. And belief leads to behaving. Help us to believe the things you want us to believe. Thanks for the good news. Thanks for your commitments to us. In Jesus' name, amen.